This is episode number eight of Cold Case Canada, The Murder of Marion Hamilton. I first wrote about this murder in 2007 in my book At Home with History. The idea behind the book was that a house has a social history or a genealogy, like a person does, and there was a chapter about murders that had happened inside various houses. I was fascinated by this story, which involved a once prominent Vancouver family, money, a rambling old rundown mansion, and of course, murder. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. In the early 1950s, shortly after he retired from a very successful real estate career, John Colborne Coote and wife Eunice sold their Shaughnessy mansion on Matthews Avenue and downsized to a smaller mansion on nearby Nanton Street. They had one daughter, Marion, who at the time was married and living in Ottawa. John Coote married Eunice Bagster Hamilton in 1904, and she was quite a catch for John. Eunice was the daughter of Judge Eli Harrison of Victoria, a prominent early legal figure in the province, with roots going back to England and connections to the royal family. Marion was born two years later in 1906. The family spent their early years in Toronto and Marion went to swanky Bransom Hall. Later, when they moved back to Vancouver, Marion studied at the Vancouver Arts School and then she went on to the Wolf School of Design in Los Angeles, where she was awarded the Diploma of Highest Merit for the Best Dress Designs of the Year. When she wasn't designing clothes, she was travelling through North America, Europe, Egypt and Hawaii. Over the years, there were several mentions of Marion in the social pages of the Vancouver Sun and Province. Marion's picture appears in the Vancouver Sun in March 1930 above a story headlined To Wed Surgeon in Honolulu. Marion went the story was to have a summer wedding to Dr Robert Benson, originally from the States and who is now a surgeon at a sanatorium in Honolulu. There are a couple of other mentions of Marion's engagement, and then nothing. The marriage never happened. Marion turned up in various social pages over the years. She served with the Red Cross during the Second World War, and this is likely where she met a fiancé, squadron leader John Hamilton. The couple were married in June 1949 in Ottawa, where John lived. John had grown up in India, where his father served in the military. John's uncle was Lachlan Hamilton, the Canadian Pacific Railway Land Commissioner, who laid out much of Vancouver and named many of Vancouver's streets, including Hamilton Street, which of course he named after himself. Marion is shown in a photo in the Ottawa Journal wearing an imported gown of pastel-flowered chiffon and matching pink kid accessories. Her corsage was formed of roses in three shades of pink and sprigs of white heather sent from Scotland. She also carried an heirloom opera bag sent to her grandmother as a wedding gift by Queen Victoria. It was woven in silk on the royal looms and enclosed a delicate lace handkerchief handmade by Princess Louise. Marion was still living in Ottawa when her father died in 1964 at age 83. It's likely she moved back at that time to help her mother. 
But less than 10 years later, Marion was suffering from early-onset dementia, still trying to take care of her 93-year-old mother, who was in really bad shape. The story gets really creepy in 1975. Eunice Coote died, but apparently Marion didn't notice. She'd been dead for at least two weeks, possibly three, lying in bed and decomposing, while Marion tried to feed and care for her. Her body was only discovered after a member of their church dropped in to check on her and made the grisly discovery. He called police. Constable Clifford Weeks got the call. He testified at the inquest that he went to the house and asked Marion when she'd last talked to her mother. Marion told him it had been about three weeks. When Constable Weeks opened the windows to air out the house, Marion followed him, closing them behind him. Weeks said that at one point he watched as Marion went up to her mother's body, cradled the head in her arm, stroked and brushed her hair, and told her mother everything would be all right. The constable said he found Marion flipping between being coherent and confused. No kidding. And to the surprise of no one, Mrs. Coote's death was ruled natural causes, and there was no inquest or further investigation. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor, and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. After her mother's death, two guardians were appointed to help Marion with her estate. One was Aloise Rhodes Wilson and Olga Young was the other. They were both cousins who were appointed to look after her. Marion was admitted to Shaughnessy Military Hospital for a few months after her mother's death, but because she was a chronic case, she was not allowed to stay there. Clearly, she needed round-the-clock help, and that's exactly what Olga Young suggested, wanting to put her into a nursing home where she'd get proper care. But Aloise told her co-guardian that she didn't want the estate to be depleted by the cost of private care. So Aloise left her law practice in Victoria and moved in to 1491 Nanton Street to take care of Marion. Olga Young was upset by this arrangement, and she told Eloise that she didn't think she was a fit guardian, and that she would be taking steps to have her removed. The next morning, Marion was dead. A few months ago, I received an email from a former employee of the Royal Trust. He asked me not to identify him, so for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to just call him Jay. In 1975, Jay was 26 years old and he'd been working on the Hamilton Coots case for five months. In 1975, I was working for Royal Trust as a uh, trust officer 
and I'd been there for two and a half years. About the 3rd or so of December, early in the morning, two detectives from the Vancouver police came in and wanted to see me and took me into a room and said that Marion Hamilton was dead and what did I know about the estate. I'd been on that case for about five months. The mother, Mrs. Coote, had died. She was like a 92-year-old. And Marion, she was 69. She was the beneficiary of the estate. And they had a house on Nathan Street, which was a, a little grand house. And so uh, I had to go out there to a, do a appraisal of the contents of the house along with the representative from Maynard. And I went to the house and met Marion. And it was bizarre. When I went into the house, she was there and she was sort of acting goofy. And there were all these groceries sitting on the stairway. They had a big grand stairway from the main floor up to the second floor. And there were all these groceries, maybe six or seven large ice cream containers that were melting on the stairs that had been there for days. I started talking to her and asked what happened with her mother. She said, oh, well, she died in a room. The fact of the case was she'd been dead in there for two weeks or more. There was a church across the street that that was the church they went to. And what had happened was the minister in that church kept asking, oh, how's your mother? How's your mother? I haven't seen her. Oh, no, she's fine. She's just resting. And uh, he finally got into the house and discovered that she was dead. When I was in there, all the windows were still open in the house because of the smell. The um, the Maynard's guy went around looking at everything. He says, hey, you got to come look at this downstairs in the basement. They had all this uh, old English mahogany furniture just stacked in there like crazy. And all this had come up around the horn back in the old days before Panama Canal. Anyways... I get talking to Marion, and she says, oh, there was trouble in the house. And, uh, I think there was an intruder in here at some point. And she says, my mother might have written something about it. She was a great one for writing notes, she said. I said, you think she left a note in her room? Mrs. Cook's bedroom was right on the main floor, just off the staircase. So I went into the room, and there was nothing in there other than the bedroom furniture. And all these paper bags, like the large paper bags that you get your groceries in, and they were stacked up against the wall. And there were dozens and dozens of them stacked up about six feet high on the wall. And I went over and grabbed one of these bags and I opened it up and had pieces of paper, like full scap paper, that was folded and then tied tight with butcher's string. So I took one and I unwound it and then read the note. And it was all about Prince Charles, the Queen, and Prince Philip on and on and on about things like that. So I opened up several more of them. But there were hundreds and hundreds of these notes in these bags they get from the grocery. Eloise Wilson came into the picture because she was a court-appointed committee with the Royal Trust Company. And one of the other duties that I had to perform for the trust company was to go to their safety deposit box at a bank on South Granville Street and do a documentation and listing of the contents of the safety deposit box. So uh, I went with Eloise Wilson and opened it up, and there were some bonds and things like that, some securities. Marion's will was in there. I took the will out and flipped through it just to see who it was and what it was all about. Eloise Wilson was standing over my shoulder looking, and I got to the last page there, and it said that on her death, everything went to Eloise Wilson. When I first talked to Eloise, 
it was always, well, we have to do everything that we can, the best for uh, Marion. We've got to get a, somebody in to take care of her. And, uh, you know, money's no object. She's my relative. After she found out that she was the, the beneficiary, sole beneficiary of the will, her whole attitude changed completely. And she wouldn't spend any money. And I had to have her agreement uh, to hire a housekeeper or something. She wouldn't do it. Gave up her law practice to come over and be the housekeeper. She just wanted to conserve the estate. And so it went on like that for a month and a half or something. And then uh, Marion was murdered. When you heard that she died, what was your first thought? Well, I was pretty shocked. The police said, what do you know about her? And I told them what I just mentioned about her realizing that she was going to be the beneficiary. And then her attitude changed. And I couldn't get her to spend any money on me. Looking after Marion. And so the police said, okay, and then off they went. That was their motive. On the night before Marion Hamilton died, the only other people in the house were Aloise Rhodes Wilson and her husband Philip. Aloise, a 47 year old lawyer from Vancouver Island, was a star witness at the coroner's inquest. She told the jury that she became co guardian after the death of Marion's mother the previous March. She said she was the sole beneficiary to Marion's $175,000 estate. She also said that Marion had told her that she wanted to join her dead mother. She often locked her cousin in her room, she said, to stop her wandering around the streets at night. On the night that Marion died, Eloise told the court that she and her husband Philip put her cousin to bed around 7pm and then Philip took the bus to Victoria where he worked as a lawyer for the Land Registry Office. The next morning, Eloise tried to open the door of her cousin's room, but found something was up against it. As she pushed the door, she found Marion lying on the floor. She called an ambulance. When the ambulance attendants arrived, they pushed the door to Marion's bedroom open and found her lying face down. They thought that she may have been moved, and because there was blood on her face, they called police. The pathologist found spotted ligature marks around her neck and said that, in his opinion, death was caused by strangulation, by a thin cord or wire. Something had cut into her flesh and left a mark that was consistent with bruising. Either someone had strangled her or she'd hanged herself with a length of string attached to the door handle. Marion wore a gold chain necklace and it was thought to be the cause of death until a later, more careful search of the crime scene turned up a length of nylon string under a chair in the room. After hearing all the evidence at the inquest, a coroner's jury found death was a result of homicide. When police learned that Aloise Wilson was the sole beneficiary of Marion's estate and the only person alone with her at the time of her death, they believed that rather than taking care of her cousin, She was actually looking after her future inheritance. The prosecution thought she'd got tired of waiting. Aloise Rhodes Harrison had carved out a name for herself as a lawyer on Vancouver Island. She came from a prominent legal family, where one of her uncles became mayor of Victoria, the other mayor of Nanaimo. A third uncle became a judge in Nanaimo's county court, and Aloise's father was a barrister in Duncan. Aloise graduated with a law degree from the University of British Columbia, and she was called to the bar in 1959. 
And then, on January 16, 1976, Aloise Rhodes Wilson was arrested in Victoria and charged with the murder of Marion Hamilton. The entire case was based on circumstantial evidence. Even though $175,000 was a nice chunk of money, that would be close to $850,000 in today's money, it still seemed odd that a well-respected lawyer would murder her cousin to presumably preserve the amount and cash it in early. But then it seems even odder that she'd leave her practice, her home, and her husband to take care of an ageing relative. And even stranger, why would a smart woman wanted to commit the perfect murder, not break a window to stage a robbery, and leave the murder weapon behind? Because there was no forced entry, and there was nothing stolen. Aloise's trial was set to start in January 1977. But a week before the trial opened, her lawyer obtained an order to exhume the body of the victim's mother, Mrs Eunice Coote, who had died in the family's Shaughnessy mansion nine months before her daughter's murder. Aloise's defence lawyer, Robert Gardner, argued that Marion may have killed her mother and later, in a fit of remorse, killed herself by looping the twine around her neck and tying the end to the handle of her bedroom door. When Aloise tried to open the door the next morning, the body fell off the china pot it had been resting on and onto the floor, explaining why the ambulance men thought that it had been moved. I was surprised to learn from the coroner's office that this is a fairly common form of suicide. Gardner asked for and received permission to exhume the old lady's body from Mountain View Cemetery. In 1985, Vancouver's most flamboyant coroner ever wrote a book with a fantastic title, How Come I'm Dead? And if you ever come across a copy, it's a great read. MacDonald covers his personal experience with cases such as the arsenic murder of Esther Castellani by her husband Rini, a CKNW personality, and a case I wrote about in my own book, Murder by Milkshake. He also wrote about the death of Australian film star Errol Flynn and he covered the tragedy of the Second Narrows Bridge Collapse in 1958, where 19 people were killed. MacDonald also wrote about Marion Hamilton's murder. Now, I found that while Coroner MacDonald is extremely entertaining and knowledgeable, he doesn't always let the facts get in the way of a good story. And he also has a disconcerting habit of referring to himself in the third person. Having said that, I'm going to read you a passage from his book about the exhumation of Eunice Coote. For the second time in his career as Vancouver coroner, Judge Glenn MacDonald found himself on official business in a graveyard. It was 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday, January 21, 1977. The sky was grey and spilling rain from leaden clouds. The coroner's left shoe was leaking. Crows and seagulls were abundant among the Sentinels' tombstones, and across the street, schoolchildren from nearby John Oliver Secondary School waved and cheered and clapped as the sombre gravediggers went about their disquieting work. Aside from MacDonald, there was a whole crew of people from the coroner's office and from the police. Gardner, the defence lawyer, had brought a forensic pathologist in from Calgary, and according to MacDonald, for some reason, Gardner was dressed in a cutaway coat, 
and a top hat for the occasion. The wooden casket was buried four feet down. It was cheap and flimsy, and had rotted away and splintered here and there. It was placed in a coroner's car and taken to the morgue, which is now the home to the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives. Later, the body was transported to Vancouver General Hospital's radiology department for x-rays to see if a small bone in the neck was broken, which could point to strangulation. Unfortunately, the body was so badly decomposed that it was really difficult for the pathologist to determine the cause of death. But three days later, MacDonald had reached a decision. There was no evidence of foul play, he ruled. Mrs. Coote's death, he said, was due to natural causes. The 93-year-old woman had suffered from a heart condition for 10 years before her death. Wilson's defence at one point tried to implicate her husband, arguing that Philip had as much to gain as Aloise in Marion's murder. The lawyer argued that there was no proof that Philip actually reached Victoria that night and he could have come back and murdered Marion. He also suggested that strangulation was more of a male act, but the jury didn't buy it and they found her guilty of second-degree murder. Aloise's life imprisonment sentence, in reality, meant she had to spend 10 years behind bars. Vancouver Sun reporter Larry Still interviewed Aloise in January 1985, when she was out on unescorted day parole to visit her sick husband in hospital. Still described her as a plump little woman who looked hardly capable of an unkind word, let alone murder. She was eligible for full parole in 1987. And it's interesting that Larry Still, a veteran reporter and a defence lawyer, both believed in Aloise's innocence. On February 16, 1983, four years before Aloise was due to be released from jail, a display ad ran in the Times Colonist. It announced an important estate auction that was being held through Maynards. It read, On behalf of the estate of Marion Coote Hamilton, a descendant of BC Supreme Court Judge Eli Harrison, plus other owners, the sale will feature many fine lots of Georgian furniture, rugs, sterling and silver plates, jewellery, European paintings and prints, and other collectibles. The contact on the notice was Miss N. Young, and it does make me wonder if this was Olga's daughter, and if Olga had then inherited the estate. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.